0: Welcome back to the Genesis study. Our last Genesis study was February 11th, exactly one month ago. And so uh, we're getting to jump back into it tonight. Last week, our sewage issue um, put our study out of commission. And so uh, we'll jump back into, we're trying to finish Genesis 24. We've been desperately trying to finish Genesis 24 for about a month and a half, two months now. And, uh, and it's turned into, I think we got two more weeks in just these two verses at the end of the 67-verse chapter. And so, funny enough, next week is spring break, so we won't be meeting. And so, we'll start the end of 24 tonight and probably finish it the week after spring break, unless something else blows up around here. So, uh, let's pray and get back into it. Uh, I'm glad y'all are here. God, we thank you uh, for how good you are, and we just thank you that you're God. We thank you that... <coughs> that as we study the Word, uh, that the Spirit intercedes and the Spirit gives us understanding. Uh, God, we can read and think on these things all day long, and uh, have no understanding unless you give it to us. And so we we beg you for that tonight. Um, tonight, as we're talking about some issues that are uh, definitely controversial and have been controversial for years, for centuries. Um, my prayer is that you would give us, allow these th- things that we're going to talk about to give us insight into your design and your plan for families and for the church and for ultimately your your re- plan for redemption in the world. God, I, I'm thinking of the sermon from Sunday and that we would be uh, quick uh, to, to hear the things that you would have us here today. And so, um, we're we're coming here, we're opening the word, we're desiring to hear from you. We don't desire to hear opinions and and, uh, just um, ramblings of thought, but I pray that you would let this be a time that is focused. I pray that it would be a time that shapes us. I pray that it would be a time that we are uh, coming to a deeper understanding of who you are and what you are doing and what you've been doing from the beginning. God, we love you. It is a privilege Uh, to come before you today and worship as we open the Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open up to Genesis 24. I feel as though we need to read this uh, because we haven't been in it for a while. And so I'm going to... uh, I'm going, to start in, um, I'm going to start in verse 1. We're just going to read through this to climb back into it since it's been a month. So here we go. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please, let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels? Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of uh, Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please... Give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord, and she quickly let down her jar and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied the jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all of his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms uh, weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm. And heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my sister's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he was given. He has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in, whom, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan, And take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you have come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little drink from your jar, a drink of water from your jar, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please, let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who a bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on, on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called the woman and asked her, and they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servants and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And these next few verses are our focus tonight. Now Isaac had returned from Beer the Leroy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. All right. This, uh, the end of this chapter is weird. It's, hey, how you doing? And they're married. And uh, and so we're gonna talk about the weirdness there. We're gonna get into that. Uh, I I wanna encourage y'all as we continue tonight We're not meeting next week, so pay close attention to what we're talking about tonight because the things we're talking about tonight are going to be very important to the things that we talk about in our next study. They're very connected. As I've had, you know, four weeks to continue to study this, I was going to just write a book about it and give it to you, but instead it's just turned into like seven pages of notes and a couple more studies. But there's a lot of good stuff in there. We can never plumb the depth of God's Word, and so there's always more, and when you get more time to study, you come out with more. So I guess we need to spend more time in this by God's design. So a couple of recap questions. Who are some of the real-life individuals that we've met in Genesis 24? And I ask that because I want us to know this is not some fairy tale in a faraway land long, long ago. These are real people. This really happened. This is really God's design. So who are some of these people that we've met? Just throw out the names and maybe what you have learned from them. The kids are doing fine. Don't worry. <laughs> huh? Leaving the sneaky. Yes. Yes. You know, um, someone said to me, I won't say who, uh, I had painted this picture that her mom had just fallen into, uh, you know, crazy thinking and trying to keep her there. And I had a mother come up to me after that study and say, you've clearly never had a daughter that you sent off to Chicago to be married, have you? And I said, no, I have not. (laughs) And and I realized that was a very good point. There's, There's much validity in just saying, I just want a few more days. So, maybe Laban dirtied the water for mom in that explanation. But I didn't remember that until you said that, so, um, who else? Eliezer, the servant, quiet, diligent servant, who else? Rebecca, the fair maiden, uh, Isaac, sitting at home waiting, that seems different than the way it works today, we'll talk about that. Uh, what's the three-part theme that we've encountered in this chapter? Remember that three-part theme that we talked about a month ago? Yeah, pay attention to the details. Worship God in the midst of the details and what's the last one? Yeah. So that they can do what? So they can worship God in a like manner. So, we pay attention to the details that are going on. We we worship God in the midst of the details. And then we share the details with others so that they can worship God in a like manner. So tonight we're looking at the last two verses in this huge 67-verse chapter. Last time we met, February 11th, I gave you some Valentine's Day homework. Y'all remember that? Uh, And so I'm going to go back to it. Y'all might have to rack your brain since it's been a month. Uh, What did you observe about what culture says about these things? Here's the things. What did you observe about what culture says about what love is, about how to show love, how to receive love and how to keep the coals of love burning. What were some of the things y'all observed? Almost all material. Almost all material. Yeah. If you love her, you'll buy her whatever. whatever. That's a good answer. Yeah. What else? Oh, it's a feeling. Mmm. It's such a feeling. And yeah. Yeah. And some have said it's more than a feeling, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. And there's nothing like diamonds to enhance that feeling of, of love. Yeah. Anything else y'all observed? Easy. Oh, yeah. If it's real, yes. If it's real, it's very easy. Yeah. They don't got to work at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone needs counseling, y'all can meet with Jeff and Ginevra. They got it. Yeah. Um, this picture that it's easy and you just got to do these things, it's almost like a method. Like, do these things, man, it's good. It's not hard. Get a little teddy bear, some chocolates. If you're real, if you really love her, You'll get her diamonds and gold and all these, you know, gifts, and there's all these things that we see uh, on that holiday in particular, and here just a month later, it's funny how we can't hardly remember what all the commercials said because it was a fleeting, you know, money-making kind of thing, and that's not particularly what love is in the Scriptures, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the next couple weeks. Um, uh, In verse 66, it says, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Verse 66, the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Think about what's happening here. Who is Isaac meeting? Yeah, that's a big deal. And what's the servant doing? Telling him a long story. We see how long it is because we read it three times in this chapter. He's telling him a long story. So, why is it important for Isaac to know? And why is it not considered peripheral in comparison to meeting his bride? Yes. Yes. Greatness. There, yeah. Yeah. It shows Isaac her heart and what God did in her heart before Eleazar even got there. You see what this is? It's not just like, yeah, 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 okay, shut up. Servant. Be quiet. This is my wife. We're going to hang out. That's, that's not what was going on here. Those are not just peripheral details. They're very central, important details. He learns about the character of his bride in those details. He learns about the character of God in those details. He learns about the character of the servant who God worked through in those details. And so the details are very important because in sharing them, what is he given a chance to do? Worship God in a like manner. So these details that he's sharing, I mean, I'm just trying to picture this thing coming together and he's like, oh, she's gorgeous. And the servant's over here talking and she's like, He's like, oh, she's gorgeous, and he's still talking. He's like, oh, she's gorgeous. No, he was paying attention because those details are very important. Now, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, come on. Kiss the bride, kiss the bride. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, I mean, think about how many weddings you've seen, wedding details, all the planning. That's godless. I'm not trying to be harsh. I know it's an important day, but it's important for a reason. It's important because God has brought people together. I had a wedding that I was going to do for someone, and they said, uh, I was reading what marriage is and what the scripture says about marriage and some parts of you know what the husband does, what the wife does, and all these things. And they called me and said, "Yeah, all that you read from that whole chapter do not include that in our wedding ceremony." Like, excuse me? And it was a huge blow up, biggest biggest blow up I've ever seen in my whole life. A total mess. But it was it was this. Oh, everything else is good. We love each other. It's, and then it's this God's peripheral. God's details in this circumstance, in the circumstance of two people coming together in this bond that is representative of divine, eternal things, those details are not just haphazard, commonplace details. They're divine and they're a source of worship and they're important because it keeps God as central to the marriage rather than we're getting married, we're doing this. Um, We talk about God a little bit so that it's kind of a spiritual thing. No, God needs to be central in this. So, uh, had God been out of the equation, Isaac would not have a wife to rejoice over. If God was out of the equation, he would not have Rebekah to rejoice over. Consider, turn to Psalm 127. Keep your finger in Genesis. We're obviously going to be staying there. But turn to Psalm 127. Verse 1 unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. See, in sharing, Eleazar has given Isaac the chance to worship God and to be able to see My father Abraham has these promises that have been given to him and my father Abraham has this house that has been built up and my father Abraham's name has been made great and it is in a short time that, well, Eliezer already referred to him as that's my master, Isaac. And you see a transference of power going on here. And so what he's able to do is say, yeah, unless the Lord puts this thing together, it's in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, it's in vain. It's a reminder to us. The anxious toil, look at that. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. If you're losing sleep, this will probably hit home with some of us because I've been there. If you're losing sleep, even though you're getting up early and you're staying up late to provide for your family, and you're just like, I can't even sleep, I'm anxious, I'm full of anxiety, there may be a sign there that you're not trusting the Lord to build the house. You're not trusting the Lord to keep it all together because unless the Lord builds the house, it is in vain that you work hard all day long. It's in vain that you try and save up money. It's in vain that you even try to feed your family because unless God builds it, it's in vain. This is in his breathed out word. And so we must trust him in that. But it's cool here because Isaac gets to see that firsthand because he had to stay home while the whole thing was going on. He didn't even get to travel along. He didn't get any say at the well. He wasn't like, hmm. She's cute. She's not. Uh, ooh, Rebecca. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, go talk to that one. He didn't get a say in that because the Lord's building His house, and there was. And what we'll get that at the end is there's love there when the Lord brings her to Him. In the same way that in the garden, the Lord brought Eve to Adam, the heavenly Father walking Eve down the aisle to the first groom, as designed by God, because it wasn't right that man was alone. And so, what's going on here is not that different from what went on originally in the garden. Yeah. Yeah. You're the pastor, it's fine. Yeah. People of God don't mm-hmm. And the other is, it, it is commonplace w- with that marriage that where they wanted me to marry them and they wanted me to leave out a bunch of God's design on it. I wouldn't do it. And they said, "Well, what are we going to do?" I said, "Give me ten minutes. I bet I can find someone who will do it." And there's like a one eight hundred we hate scriptural <laughs> marriage, and uh, and I. Call the guy I know and uh, who does that because there's lots of times where someone wants to get married and they don't agree with the church and you just need someone who's more neutral to come in and do it. Took 10 minutes on the phone. Bam. I wrote him a check. I paid for it. Here you go. That's fine. It's easy. You can do what you want to do. But there's a stark contrast between this and what Ben just described. A stark contrast. And it's going to get even starker as we move forward. Starker. Write it down in your notes and your journals. Um. Uh, Verse 67, this is where it gets crazy. Y'all watch out. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Here we go. Is it weird to anyone that such passion and even love could exist within a few minutes of meeting? Yes. The answer is yes. It is weird to you because it should be weird to you. It better be weird to you. But culturally, it's especially weird. It's like, what? They just met. What is that? Um, It seems foreign to us. Do you know any couples who have met like this? They didn't? (laughs) When I said couples, I meant married under God's design, not torn apart, not. Yeah. all the time. It's amazing how normal of a practice that is. That's one of the things we're going to be most of the world over most of history. Uh, Here, it's kind of a, hi, how you doing? Nice to meet you. And they go to the tent. There you go. What do you think is meant by love here? Now, I asked that carefully. I mean, it says, then Isaac brought her into the tent with his mo- uh, to the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. What's meant by love here? It's interesting because your mind might go to, I think I know what that means, and I don't want to answer out loud. It's actually, it's interesting. The Anchor Bible talks about how the Hebrew manuscripts indicate a use um, that is not uh, active as it is stative, and ex- it expresses a lasting feeling rather than a temporary sensation. I'm trying to use just friendly language here. A lasting feeling as opposed to a temporary sensation. So it's not just he loved her, it uh, looks like things are official, we're married, but he lo- it's, it was an ongoing thing. There was real, true love there, not just lust, not just physical, intimate passion. True love that was there and it lasted on. It was real. Now, we're going to come back to this. However, before we do this, there's an interesting point I want to draw out about physical intimacy in marriage. ready for this? Um, there's an interesting point that, uh, to point out about physical intimacy in marriage, and that here we see it as, what does it say? He was what? Comforted. Huh. He was comforted. Here, what we're saying is that, why, okay, first of all, why did Isaac need comfort? His mom had died. How how many years before? About three years before, roughly. So for three years he's been mourning. He sees camels in the distance. Those camels mean one thing. His bride is there. Hey, how you doing? Physical intimacy, true love, true real love and comfort from the mourning that he was experiencing from his mother's death three years previous. Scripturally, physical intimacy in marriage goes beyond only making babies. Now, the two things that may pop into your mind are, okay, uh, togetherness, passion, and babies. There's actually more things in marriage, and I'm going to share this list with you briefly, not expounding too much on anything, because we might all just catch on fire, and, uh, and, and you may come away realizing that you have uh, 65% more reasons for it. The first thing is... Uh, the scripture, physical intimacy in marriage, pleasure. The, the book, Song of Songs. There's no mentioning of babies in Song of Songs. And it is some crazy reading. It, I mean, it is, it, is, it, is, it is pleasure. Again and again, your teeth are like that of a horse. I mean, we're talking serious pleasure. Um, so the first thing is pleasure. The second thing is children. In Genesis one twenty eight, we see that first. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Ge- children. So you have pleasure and you have children. But it goes beyond that even. In Genesis 2.24, we see it as oneness, the oneness. It, 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 it um, helps to foster oneness in a relationship. One of the things, um, if people are having uh, physical intimacy issues in marriage, sometimes they'll go to counseling, and one of the things that they'll ask a counselor is, they'll kind of have their laundry list like, is this okay? Is this all right? What about this? Are we allowed to do this? What is this? And one of the answers that, that a counselor will regularly give is, does it promote oneness? is it promoting oneness? If not, then no. And that may be different for people, but does it promote oneness? Everyone's uncomfortable, so I'm going to go to number four. Knowledge. In Genesis 4, 1, it's physical intimacy in marriage promotes knowledge, a knowledge of one another so that you may know one another better. Number five, protection. In 1 Corinthians 7, protection from temptation. It says, do not go too long without it in marriage, for you may be tempted. And only go longer without it in marriage if you're praying and fasting and things of that nature. But when you're done with that, be quick to get back to it. That's what it says. So we see protection. And then here we see comfort. He was comforted in it. And we also see that in 2 Samuel. After um, his son from uh, Bathsheba had died, Uh, it it actually says uh, from Uriah's wife, uh, to be appropriate, uh, the son died and it says uh, uh, he went in. and and laid with her, and he was comforted in the death of his son. So pleasure, children, oneness, knowledge, protection, and comfort. Those are all roles of physical intimacy in marriage. If you want that list afterwards, come and tell me, and I'll give you the scriptures. Getting back to the first part of verse 67. Verse 67, then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I want to think through some things here so that we can gain a better understanding of what's going on. Isaac is how old? 40. His wife uh, that was just chosen for him by God has just been presented to him after the brief, hi, how you doing? The marriage covenant is consummated with physical intimacy, and there Isaac is comforted from the mourning that has been going on since his mother died. And here's a few questions to draw out why this seems weird to us, why it could be so quick, like you don't even know her. Why don't y'all have dinner or something? You didn't even take time for dinner. You just went right to it. Why does this seem weird? Okay, first thing. First question. What do you think about arranged marriages? This is where I would love insight if you lived in a culture where there are arranged marriages. What stereotypes pop into your head? How would you feel as a young man or woman if your marriage was arranged? Yeah. Has anybody else experienced that in here? Oh, you grew up in Nigeria. So just get, she wouldn't, she didn't grow up in Greenville in case anybody was wondering. It's Nigeria. yeah I mean, what's our normal practice for marriage like obviously, it's not that, so what does it normally consist of? How would y'all explain it? yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great observation. Yeah, it's it's very un-American to think like that. It's very American. I'm an individual. I'll make my decision. I'll do what I want. I, 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 me, me, me. And then you go to your family later and see what they think after you've done what you're going to do. And so that it's, it's very American to think that way. It's very un-American to think of yourself first as a brother, sister, you know, father, mother, whatever, and then other things. Um, what do you think of dowry? What comes into your mind when you hear the word dowry? Pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Three pigs, yeah. Pigs. Money. What? Your dad has to pay someone to get you married, yeah. He's tired of feeding you. Pay someone to feed you. Yeah. Okay. What else comes into your mind when you think of dowry? Gold, lots of gold, yeah. Okay. What comes into your mind when you think of bride price? Ooh, that one's even meaner. Bride price. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. You're not the only one thinking that, yeah. <laughs> her parents gave her um, thousands of dollars worth of gold jewelry mm-hmm. so that that would have their best day mm-hmm. every financial crisis. Yeah. a so the couple, they, that, they yeah. That's what that jewelry is doing to her. After. Yeah. Wow. It's very interesting. That's totally going to come back into play. Bride price. Any other thoughts on bride price? livestock okay okay yeah yeah like this guy can afford ten dollars and you try and talk him down yeah if the bride price is too high you got to hold out you know yeah okay (laughs) I want your business I want your business yeah Dang. Oh, yeah, there we go. Oh, there you go, that comes later for sure. What do you think of polygamy? We'll go into the next question. What I comes. Noticed, I noticed that when you said you know, saying, Milka, wife of Nahor. Why didn't you mention Milka? Why wasn't just the the grandson, granddaughter of yeah. Nahor? I think it must have been a natural wife. Yeah. There you never could tell about, so watched a documentary on it. Uh huh. romantic. Not God's design, kind of apart. Okay. Okay. B- before I address these things, we're going to talk about each of these things and we're going to talk about them for a reason. But before I do, I am in no way giving full-fledged approval and support to any one of them I want to make that clear because I'm going to be saying things that are going to make you, what? what? Did he say that? I'm not giving full-fledged support or approval to any one of them. That's not what we're doing. However, in understanding a very big and important theme, I'll go ahead and tell you right now, of family, we gain insight into God's design. So we're going to talk about each of these. There are no laws about marriage. You read through the Scriptures, there's no laws. There's only customs and procedures, accepted ways of doing things dependent upon which culture you live in. And as you study history and you study different places geographically, it differs because the people differ. But what we don't see in, in, in the word especially is these laws, these particular, you, this is how you find a wife, this is how you get your betrothed, this is how the dowry is. It's not all lined out as a law. You see a lot of culturally accepted procedures. There um, we need to understand this divinely implanted theme of family, implanted by God, that continually causes God's people to function as they have. Now, proceeding uh, with the things that they've done, the, the procedures they've adopted, um, we've got to understand this theme of family to understand a view of why anyone would even bring up bride price or dowry or an arranged marriage, which sounds so crazy to us. So, uh, we've got to understand this big theme of family I'm telling you that ahead of time. We're going to get to that in detail, but ahead of time, know we're talking about family. But first, before we do that, we need to do away with the foolish misconception that just because we're doing things the way we're doing things does not mean it's the best way that it's ever been done, okay? Okay? Just because we're doing things the way we do them now. Just because the normal procedure is you go off to college, you go to a bar, you meet a girl, and then you date, and then you meet another girl, and you date, or guy, whatever, and then you, then later on, you, you find them, you, you put a ring on their finger, and then you go back to mom and dad and say, look at the ring on her finger. Look what I did. Just because that's the normal procedure, and it's just because of the, the way we function currently, Culturally. Does not mean it's the best way. C.S. Lewis addressed this as chronological snobbery, is what he called it chronological snobbery. It's a type of thinking that automatically looks at the past and says clearly they were not as knowledgeable or informed as us, or else they would have never functioned that way. Clearly they're not as smart as us, or so they would have never done it like that. One who is guilty of chronological snobbery is not usually one who is open to reason. One who's guilty of chronological snobbery is not one who usually has a pure motive because it's snobbery, which is selfishness and self-promotion and this self-aggrandizing. This is how we do it. So here's here's the turn. I think as we, especially as we look at this, I think we're very susceptible to this type of thinking in reference to things like arranged marriages. Like we can just look at it and say, stupid, invalid, unreasonable, unfair, impractical. That's not how we do it. That's not how we work. That's, that's, that's not even worth a second thought. Open your mind and say, just because we're doing things the way we're doing them does not mean they're the best. In fact, Vody Bachum, in his book, The Family-Driven Faith, he makes an insightful commentary on modern-day dating practices. And what he says is, modern-day dating practices are like divorce practice, You get really, really involved and you give away a whole lot of yourself only to find out it wasn't right and you break up and then as the honeymoon period is over you're breaking up and then you get into another relationship to give away a whole lot of yourself. I mean, there's so many teenagers now that you know they're they're not even in their 20s and they've had multiple partners they've had these relationships that are so involved and so involved and they just are only with each other all the time and then it doesn't work but then they find someone else that they're able to be so involved with and what he describes is it's really just divorce practice and it's why are we surprised when they get married and the same thing happens they've been doing this for a decade before they think of marriage and so what we see here is that we should be mindful that uh, while things such as arranged marriages seem outdated and foolish, our current common dating slash courting practices are no doubt less than honorable while certainly not producing healthy, lasting marriages on the whole. So we could maybe learn from arranged marriages. Remember, I'm not giving full-fledged approval to anything, but we're going to look at this. So as I've been studying all these things, what I'm realizing is that the origin of an arranged marriage, the origin of the concept of a dowry, the origin of the concept of bride price, and and even polygamy, and I'm real careful about that one because it's so weird. Um, The origin of these things is very different from the perverted form of them that we currently see. See, when... When I said arranged marriage, it wasn't like, oh, great idea, very, very, very wise father. I I didn't hear that. When I said dowry and bride price, I didn't hear, "Mm mm-hmm, that validates their worth, that totally validates, you know, like, it's not this positive thing, because a lot of what we know of those things today is the perverted form of what they were originally. Originally, it was about the family. It was all about the family, and and we're going to talk about that. So to take them individually, let's talk about what they aren't, and then we'll talk about what they are. An arranged marriage is not something that is always against the will of the sons and daughters involved. An arranged marriage, as we saw it right here in Genesis 24, designed by God, divine in what it is, in its existence, was not something that was always against the will of the son and the daughter. How have we seen this in Genesis 24? Yeah. Rebecca went willing. Will you go? Yeah, I'll go. That was a big decision. But it, she was all there. You didn't see her saying, Dad, I don't know. I don't love him. I, I, she didn't even know him at that point. So here, it's not, arranged marriage was not always this deal where the sons and the daughters hated. Now, what have you heard a lot of, with the exception of Biola, uh, what have you heard a lot of in, in reference to this? Like, oh, we got married and we hated each other. That, that is a lot of what happens today. You Mm-hmm. Yes, Yourself. yeah. Is that I'm of? Yes, was mm hmm, ripped from mm hmm, from yeah. Yeah. Your relationship. A in <laughs> yeah. Isaac sees her and says he loves her. Mm-hmm. He's only her a he's to love her. Mm-hmm. I'm setting my heart's affection on this woman. Mm-hmm. It's not boy meets girl. That's yeah. a difficult time yeah. to a lecture we love in terms of mm-hmm. boy cool and girl falls in love. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, your relationship with Jesus that gives you access to the Father is an arranged relationship, yeah. Uh, yes, this, this uh, yeah, the example that I have is the movies like Aladdin, like you just mentioned, the movies always make it so that the princess does not fall in love with the chosen prince, but rather the stable boy. That's, that's, the, that's the caricature. But I love him, the poor, you know, stable boy and all that. I mean, the same thing, like Aladdin. It's the same thing. And we make the biggest caricature of it. It's in our movies. All, I mean, we could probably list 100 movies where that's the theme. Like, she's supposed to be with this guy, but she really loves the poor guy, you know, that thing. Um, so, arranged marriage is not always something that's against the desires of the, the two that are being brought together. It's important to note because we are absolutely coming back to what Ben just talked about. The second thing is, is that a dowry is not the price that a father pays to a young man to take his daughter off his hands or to gain a standing socially or politically. Now, have we seen it perverted? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because in different cultures it's it's defined differently, but there's dowry and there's bride price. And in some cultures, the bride price is always less than the dowry. But in some cultures, what you see is you give a bride price almost just to prove that you, you can take care of this woman. And then as part of the dowry, they just throw the bride price back at you. It's almost like a goodwill kind of thing, and we're going to get to that, but it says a dowry is not the price that the father pays a man to take the daughter off his hands because they don't want to feed her anymore, and it's not even something that was supposed to be used for social and political standing, even though it was perverted in its later years. Because obviously then there would be a competition between grooms to earn a richer bride, and it makes everything about marriage completely social. So in its original form, that's not what it was. And bride price is not the price that a young man pays to a young lady's father so that he might purchase a nice young bride. The brides are not livestock. We, we got to hear that. It's not what its original form was. I'm just talking about what it's not. We're about to get to what they are. Polygamy was not always, that's the one you got to be careful with. Polygamy was not always about the powerful yet perverted man who just wanted more partners. Marriage has everything to do with the Family everything to do with the family. And for those of us who believe in the scriptures, it does today too. it's, It's not in a perfect match to what we see in the garden and what we see here, but it should not be something void of honoring mother and father. The call to honor your father and your mother is not limited to their earning honor. It's not a conditional thing. You honor father and mother, period. And so what we're gonna see here is that from the beginning and today, In God's divine, perfect design for church and for for family, that marriage has everything to do with family. This is the big theme that led generation after generation to adopt particular procedures and customs, though they're not laws. Just consider for a moment, what would a society be like if families were completely done away with? What would it be like? Okay. Does anyone know what he's talking about? Plato's, Plato's Republic? Republic. Explain. Cool. Yeah. In Plato's Republic, that's literally what happens. Mm-hmm. Because if you have children, they're taken by the state. The state leads them is the entire, it takes a village concept. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, the relationship between the man and wife is merely non-existent. Yeah. What, what would happen to children if there was no such thing as marriage as instituted by God? Yeah, that's an important one. Yeah. What else? Yeah, we couldn't even function. Yeah. 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 Be open to all kinds of perverse things if there was no mandate given by God towards wholeheartedness in marriage, towards perseverance in marriage. Marriage has everything to do with the family. mm -mm. they wouldn't see it lived out in the home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they would, they would not see daddy loving mommy as Christ loved the church. It wouldn't, there wouldn't even be a comparison to make if there was no marriage. So, um, again, I'm talking about things in an original form. And so this arranged marriage that we're talking about is not weird. I mean, I remember the first time I read this in Genesis, and I was just like, man, that is so old, news, disconnected, and it's not. It's not. It's not. This is, all, this is all having to do with everything, and marriage has everything to do with the family. Uh, in Athens, um, at, at, at one point in Athens, marriage was only looked at as an economic partnership. That's a perversion from its original sense. I mean, you can't look back at the garden and say, yes, they needed that economic partnership so that they could make sure that their trees and their part of the garden was separate from this trees and their part of the garden, and then if they split up, then they were... No, you didn't need that, but what they had done in Athens at one point is they turned it into only an economic partnership in which it was completely necessary for you to get married, for you to have babies, for you to have a big family, and then the the, the wealth would grow, and you could keep the wealth within the family, and it would keep other people from coming in and taking your wealth. It was just real self-centered, let me grow and make my name great kind of thing. That's a perversion of its original form. Marriage in its original form was not that, and marriage has everything to do with the family. You'll hear that a jillion times before we're done. So let's get back to what it is, an arranged marriage. And again, as I say what they are, remember, we're going back to their original form, and I don't want to give full-fledged approval to anything, but an arranged marriage was a means, just listen to this, a means by which discerning heads of household would do all they could to keep their households rightly intact and their heritage from being blemished. It was responsible. It had to do with a father and a mother saying, no, I'm not okay with you marrying a Canaanite just because you think she's hot. I'm not okay with you bringing pagan polytheistic worship into our house. I'm not okay with exposing our family to a godless way of living that our forefathers have gone to great lengths to protect us against. It is a father saying, I want to be familiar with the values and character of your spouse's family because in marriage, our family is not divided, it is multiplied. And no one wants to multiply something that is wicked and gross and broken. I want to know what's going on. I want to make sure that our family is protected in this and that God is honored. No one wants multiplication of something wicked and unhealthy. We want to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth in a way conducive to our created purpose, to glorify God. That's your created purpose. So what a father is saying in arranged marriages, yeah, I want to make sure these things are, are, are clear. Before God commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply, he created them in what image. His image. That's important. We can always come back to this. No matter what we're studying, we come back to this. Image bearers of God. What do you think it means to be an image bearer of God? Yeah, it's a privilege. True reflection. reflection. To who? Yeah. What does it mean to glorify God? Obey, point to his word, word. wholehearted worship. worship. Yeah, we're created as image bearers. So what that means is that when people look at us, they're not supposed to see us. We're supposed to live in such a way where we're putting God's glory on display in our lives. Like I'm just a big display case and my created purpose as an image bearer of God is to put his glory on display so that when you look at my life, you will not see me, but rather you'll see a reflection of God to you. You'll see the glories of God. You'll see God's design. You'll see God's plans. You'll see God's redemption. You'll see God's patience. You'll see God's wrath. You'll see all these things of God in my life so that you will have the opportunity to worship God in the same like manner. That's what it means to be created as an image bearer. You're living in a way where you are glorifying God. That's your created purpose in everything you do. If you're doing anything in your life where you're not glorifying God, don't do it. It's a waste of time. You're not living within your created purpose. You were created for God's glory. And we glorify him. It's, it's a picture of magnification, not where we're taking a little bitty God and making him big in a telescopic manner, but more in a, or in a microscopic manner, but in more in that telescopic manner where, where he may seem far away to someone. You're living in such a way where they look at you and, and they can see him as closer and, and see the realities of who he is in a more clear way. That's our created purpose. That's the way he created us before he said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So it's not just this economic partnership. It's this deal where as a married couple, you are putting the gospel on display and you are living in such a way where people look at y'all's lives and they see the glory of God, not just two people who have it together in an, economic, in an economically wise way. So pause and think about how different this definition is from the typical view of an arranged marriage. This is very different when you're thinking about a dad saying, I want to make sure that we know what our families are being joined to. It kind of makes me want to arrange my daughter's marriage. I mean, I'm like, oh, that's smart. That's good. I like that. And and then I got to thinking, is there a way that I could arrange the marriage where no one knew that I actually arranged it? I just was very sneaky about it. And it may happen. It may happen. Um, But here, um, what we're seeing is, uh, what is another way of accomplishing the same objective without calling it an arranged marriage? What's another way of accomplishing the exact same thing that I just described Putting God's glory on display, guarding your family, protecting what's going on. What's a way to do that without calling it an arranged marriage? And it exists. You can do it. A children would seek a parent's approval? That's crazy, yeah. What's another way we could do it? Yeah. Yeah, what yeah, how can I make sure that I know what the families are being joined with? Yes. Yes. It's kind of like I knew yeah. Mhm. Yeah. 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 So they model it for you. They put it on display for you. They show you what to expect so that what I hope my daughters do one day is they see some guy who's like, oh, you want to go out? And they're like, my dad would think you're a bonehead. No way. Yeah. Yeah, that's modeled. That's good. So the way that we could do the exact same thing is to be a part of your child's life. And don't just give up when they're 10, like as as you're going on, know what's going on, talk to them, encourage them, be in the word, shepherd them in its simplest terms, you shepherd them. Dowry was not actually paid by the bride's father to the groom, but rather it was something that was generally paid in its original sense by the bride's family to the groom's family. Now let me explain this. There's a very big difference between I'm paying you to take this girl off of my hands and I'm giving this to the family for their well-being there's a big difference. Again, it's all about the family. It's the bride's father saying, <clears throat> I want you and our family to flourish, and I'm going to help take care of you. It's about family. Do y'all see this? It's not just about this individualistic, selfish mindset. It's about family. I want you to flourish and be taken care of. The code of, I always say this wrong, hammerabai, Hammerabi. how do you say it, Ben? Hammerabi. I got it right the second time and then showed my foolishness by asking him. Hammurabi. This was written in 1760 B.C. This is 400 years, almost 400 years, before Mosaic Law was written, before the the law that we see in in Exodus was written. This Code of Hammurabi, I think, um, was written in 1760 B.C. Uh, The Mosaic Law was 1380 B.C., and it states two interesting things. This is 400 years before Mosaic Law. This is, in fact, the first recorded code of laws that exists on the planet. The first recorded ones. The first one says, marriage contracts are essential. That's the earliest recorded code of laws in existence on the planet. And number 128, the marriage contract is essential. And number 162 says this, and pay attention to this if a man outlives his wife, her dowry belongs to her children, not her husband. Y'all see what the difference is there? Look at your heritage. Take care of your children, take care of future generations if dad outlives mom, dad doesn't get to take the dowry and go find another mom or just abandon the kids. That money would actually go, those, the treasure, whatever it is, the, the uh, riches would go to the children, not even the dad. Today, we have something um, similar. It's called a generational trust. My, my granddad has set one up, and he has a company and a business that that, that he's grown over the years, and he set up what's called a generational trust. It's the same thing we're seeing here in its original form in dowry, in that he says that <clears throat> he has four children. 25% of the, of the company goes to each of the four children. And like if my mom dies, it doesn't go to my dad. I found this out a few weeks ago. I'm like, dad's in Genesis <laughs> 24. It, it goes to me and my three brothers, not my dad. So like if this, it'd be so weird if my mom gets hit by a car or something random I don't wish that. I love my mother immensely. If I would have to go to board meetings starting tomorrow, and my dad would be sitting there with no say. But why would you do that? It seems harsh a little bit, right? Like why would you do that? Yes. It's to make sure that no one just marries in for money. It's to make sure that no one manipulates a family and a business. It's just to make sure that your heritage is cared for, your future generations are being looked after. It's just a generational trust. That's what we have today. They're all over the place. And here it's the same thing. In this this law that was written 400 years before Mosaic Law, you see it already existing there where it was for the family. And it wasn't even this God-centered thing. It was just the way that they were operating because there's something inside of everyone that says we need to function in a certain way and you adopt these customs because of this divinely oriented thing called family. We didn't come up with it. Um, it's a generational trust. It considers the safeguards uh, from money grubbers and, and other things. Um, the point is that the dowry existed for taking care of the family with a view towards future generations and heritage. Taking this into account, um, it's funny, because when we see someone who's inherited a lot of money, we usually like, lazy, you didn't even work for that, you know, rather than, hey, maybe his father had a, this view of taking care of future generations. But a lot of times we just slough it off like, loser, you didn't even work. Um, in India, this is interesting. In 1961, in India, there were so many things attached to the dowry, so many preconditions, like I'll marry her if, 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 if you give me this, if you give me this, I'll do this, 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 if, 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 preconditions, that they actually, in 1961, instated the um, 1961 Dowry Prohibition Act. And it prohibits the request, payment, or acceptance of a dowry in India, where there's lots of arranged marriages, as consideration for the marriage. So you can't have a dowry if it has a precondition to the marriage. Like, I'll marry her if you ante up. You can't do that as of 1961 there. Where dowry is defined as a gift demanded or given as a precondition for marriage, you cannot do that. It's against the law. Gifts given without a precondition are not considered dowry and are legal. So it's funny. They redefine dowry. In its original sense, it was for the family. Here, it's, it's about selfish men who were taking advantage of these brides and treating them like livestock. And, and you see this picture that they had to say, well, okay, dowries are illegal. It was redefined. But what you can do is give a gift as a goodwill nature to take care of the family, as long as there's no preconditions to the marriage. Does that make sense? Are you all hearing what I'm saying? Like, that's interesting. They had to put a law to get away from the perverted nature of man to mess something up that was originally maybe not so bad. The bride price? was not how a young man bought a bride, and we'll close with this one, was not how a young man bought a bride from the bride's father. The bride price was paid by the groom's family to the bride's family as a goodwill gesture of wanting to offset the loss that the family will experience by the daughter moving out. All right, let me explain that. In those times, a daughter or son was more than just a deadbeat who sat around on the sofa eating mom and dad's food that mom and dad paid for in mom and dad's house. They did something. They contributed to the family. They didn't just sit and play video games all the time. A young woman played an important role in the home just as each member of the church is given specific gifts to be used and not sat on. For example, what was Rebecca doing when we met her? Drawing water. So here's the deal. She was at the well gathering water for the animals in the family. So the the groom's family would see the importance of the daughter in her family and offer up a sum of goods and money to validate her worth, not invalidate her worth. Now, obviously, the problem comes in when you say, You validate my worth with three Campbells. Like, that's a little weird, right? That's when the problem comes in. But the original thing is, Man, I know you're losing a daughter, and she's valuable to your family. And as a goodwill gesture, here is money and goods and whatever else I can give you, because I know that that's a loss. And we're family now, and we are not separate people, and we're tracking. That's what it was originally. Then polygamy—the one we got to be careful with—too often perverted. Uh, in simplest form, more mommies mean more babies. Family. Now, <laughs> I'm not giving full pledge approval to this. Now, they can all be corrupted. Polygamy can turn into a power-hungry man who just wants more partners, more offspring, so that people can see him as having more power. A bride price can be corrupted to make the bride the object of matrimony instead of the subject of matrimony. The dowry can be corrupted if used to gain a standing with another family in an attempt to make your own name greater. And an arranged marriage can be used to gain power disregarding the desires of the two who are to be married. But ultimately and originally, these things, this giving of gifts that we see that you could call bride price. This arranged marriage that you could call crazy in Genesis 24, an original sense, it's all about the family. It's all about the family. And one of the things that we're going to look at, uh, it's ultimately and originally birth from a desire to see the family flourish, to not just be selfish and thinking, I'm going to die in like, what, 60 years? Who cares after that? A wise, godly man will have a view past that, towards the future generation so that they might be faithful. And so what we're going to look at next week, the week after next week, is that as marriage has become less about the family and more individualistic, it has done so because church has become less about the family and more individualistic you hear know what I'm saying? What we're gonna consider next week is how in the world has it happened that the church, which was once all about families coming together, ascribe, oh, families, to the glory of God. Ascribe how great he is. Ascribe his wondrous deeds. Tell of, the, of all of the things that God has done to all the earth, oh, families, oh, families, oh, families, fathers, sit with your kids. Wherever you're going, tell them about what God has done. As the church has become less about families and more about individuals, which is very American, Marriage has become less about families and more about individuals. You don't hear, Mom and Dad, can you help me find the right person? It's usually, this is who I'm marrying. And if you don't like it, I'm going to be sad for a minute, but I'm I'm still going to marry him. And you can decide if you want to be a part of our life. That's usually what it is. But I think that if we can see this profound mystery of church and family just being all about each other, We can see that if we can be less individual and more about family, we're doing things as God designed, and we're giving him glory. We're living according to that created purpose as an image bearer of God, putting his glory on display in all we do. So in two weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about, and we're going to see how these things that we've looked at today, arranged marriage, bride price, dowry, and polygamy, can be a tutor to help us see the value of family as God designed it, and the corruption that can seep into the church if we disregard it. Any questions? Thoughts? Again, if anyone wants uh, the list that I shared at the beginning of the study, come afterwards and I'll let you know. I haven't read that yet, and I've ordered I, Isaac, Take Thee, Rebecca, and I'll be reading it next week. Have you read it? Yeah? Yeah? What was uh, something that stuck out in that book? The divorce practice thing, yeah. Yeah, someone else wrote a book called Stop Dating the Church. Because, you know, as the individualistic nature creeps in. You, you get people to just hop from one to the other, seeing, oh, I finally found what I'm looking for. Ah, oh, you're not making me happy. I'm going to go somewhere else. It's the same lingo in both scenarios. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. You've got to have a vision for future generations to start praying for a spouse. When I'm looking at my two year old little girl and thinking, I hate the idea of you getting married, but I'm going to pray for your spouse because it, if you really believe in what prayer does and who God is, you'll do that. You're absolutely right. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us, and uh, I, I am so thankful for your design. We've looked at some weird things tonight, some things that are so foreign to the way that we think, some things that are so backwards to the way that we function as a society and even as the church. And my prayer is that in in studying the the origin of things that, that you put into place, I pray that we would see this high view of family and in doing so, we would see a high view of church and as we see a high view of church, we would have a higher view of family and it would be this thing that feeds it because of the profound mystery that exists between the two of them. God, your design is way beyond our full understanding, way beyond anything that we could come up with on our own. And so we thank you for marriage tonight. I thank you for families tonight, and I thank you for the church tonight, and I pray that as we continue uh, in Genesis 24, that you would heighten our view of each of them so that we would be better at living according to our created purpose, which is bringing you glory. I pray that as we have a heightened view of these and we respond appropriately, that people would look at our lives and see your glory and not just our designs, because it's not our design. We can't come up with something this good. God, you're very good to us. Your, your provision is abundant. Uh, your love is, is perfect and lacking in nothing. And we, we, uh, we humbly come before you with, with full of thanks um, for the time we had tonight in the word. We thank you for Jesus and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.